0: Welcome to the 13th episode of Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by Robert Kavsik, a senior economist from the BMO Economics team. This week's episode is titled, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Hot Housing? I'm Ben Reitzes, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep the show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.writesus at bmo.com. That's benjamin.r-e-i-t-z-e-s at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Before we start, here's some background on Rob. Rob's been with BMO for 15 years, and we've worked together closely throughout that entire period. When I have questions on housing or the provinces, he's my first call or email, or back in pre-COVID days, I would just shout over. Welcome to the show, Rob. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so we put out a piece on Tuesday this week uh, outlining potential policy actions the government could take to cool the housing market. Uh, in case any of our listeners missed it out there, uh, reach out to me. I'm happy to, to send that along uh, or, or send you a link. Rob, I guess, why the sudden urgency to push policymakers to act? And I mean, housing's been strong for a while now. Uh, what What's changed in the past,
2: call it a couple of months or so, or, or maybe it's just more of the same and then it's time to act? Um, well, so the short story is I think the market is it's almost gone parabolic the last six months or so right so prices are like as we as we see them now prices are are detaching from fundamentals and that's that's really the concern and 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 i say this as somebody and as you know very well you've you've been in my camp on this too probably for for the last 10 years or so that we're we're not housing bears at all right we're we've very much been of the belief that supply and demand fundamentals have been explaining a lot of the strength in housing and and home prices have been rising because they should have been rising. Um, But when you see prices going almost 20% year over year, and then on a three or a six or a one month annualized basis, 30, 40, 50%, I've I've seen some comps that are up, no joke, 40% just since the fall, not annualized. Uh, We have a bit of a situation brewing where where, where the price strength is starting to feed on itself, and and if that starts to bring in more speculation, and prices detach even further from fundamentals, then we're going to have to obviously pay back for this over a long period of time once this is done.
0: So home prices shouldn't go up like hundred percent per year.
2: Doesn't <laughs> it? Doesn't seem
0: healthy to me. <laughs> That's fair. Um, bubble. The bubble talk started a while ago, and I think at the time it was more like, well, I mean, we're clearly headed in that direction potentially, but why don't we wait to get there before calling it that? Uh, is that I mean? Is that how you would characterize where we are at the moment? Uh, and, and I guess is it the whole market, parts of the market? How would you characterize it?
2: So uh, you know, I, like I hate the word bubble, right? Because we've been we've been arguing against this for, as I said, for like ten years. So I don't want to just jump in and call it that um, because you know what? And I think like at the root of this, there are real supply and demand fundamentals that are driving prices. The, the problem is pandemic has magnified everything, right? So you have supply side constraints, you have a lot of demand coming down the pipeline for millennials or people looking to trade up for single detached homes. And the pandemic pulled a lot of that demand forward and threw record low interest rates on it, threw very aggressive fiscal policy on it. So it's almost like not a bubble because there are underlying fundamentals underpinning this market, but it's more like, it's more like a perfect storm of factors that have compressed all this strength into a very short window. Like, so at its root, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just, it's just, it's starting to, it's starting to run too hot and it's starting to possibly feed on itself. And that's where, that's where policymakers maybe have to start looking at this and saying, you know, yes, we have supply fundamentals. We have demand fundamentals that are legitimate, but if this kind of price strength starts to to pull in speculation, then, then it becomes a problem. And then it starts to look more like a, you know, like that classic bubble where prices are rising faster simply because prices are expected to rise faster. And I mean, I, I you know, if you want to call it that, that's that's pretty much where we are right now. We have some survey data that suggests as much, and and I mean, just speak to people on the ground, it suggests as much too that that there's nothing to to stop the housing market at this point. So, yeah, I mean, I hate the term, but I mean, let's be honest, it's it's looking more like that, I guess.
0: Fair enough. I, I you talked about fundamental factors, and I'm, I'm I, I love demographics, uh, something I'm I'm, I'm always uh, interested in. Uh, can you outline, because you do it better than I do, the demographic factors that are impacting the housing market at the moment, and and what kind of durability do those have? Like, how long is that going to last? And, and so, even if we put in new measures uh, to slow things down, those factors are still going to be there, and so there'll still be that underlying support for for housing. Outline them, please, for the listeners. I think I think that, like, for me, that's number one. That's the most important thing, and then everything else is kind of secondary after that.
2: Yeah, I agree. the 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 factors are 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 not going to go away. So policy isn't like in that piece we put out. Policy is not uh, attempting to, to to eliminate this fundamental support. It's a, it's attempting just to cool down the froth that's kind of built on top of it, right? So on the demographic side, it's it's really like I would say two main pieces. One is the one that everybody knows about, and that's international immigration, and since 2015, 2016, when when the government changed over and immigration targets were were increased, we've seen a dramatic increase in international immigration flows. With respect to like the age distribution of those flows, they're typically younger to middle age, and that's that's a prime uh, segment of the demographic that that requires housing or looks to looks to buy housing. Right now, obviously, those flows are on pause. Uh, just given the pandemic, a lot of a lot of the decline we've seen in the immigration flows over the last year has been in non permanent residents. So the bigger impact there has has really been on on the rental market, things like students and temporary foreign workers. Um, permanent residents still seem to be flowing, but obviously down a little bit. But I think the key here is that Ottawa is making it pretty obvious that once we get through this pandemic, uh, not only are we going to return to very strong permanent immigration targets, but we actually might see those those targets increase to make up for lost time. Uh, and so so initially what happens is those, those inflows tend to get scattered pretty evenly across the country. Uh, and then so the second piece of the demographic story is interprovincial migration, right? So a lot of those flows over time typically gravitate to where the strongest job markets are. And that's at the end of the day, it's Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa. And that's not coincidentally where the vast majority of the housing market strength has been. Um, you do have periods where where Alberta draws provincial migration when, when oil prices are strong and that economy is strong, but that's you know that's just not the case right now. So it's really those those four major cities. And then the biggest piece of this that that nobody seems to appreciate for some reason or maybe they're starting to wake up to this now, but I know you and I have been talking about this for the last 10 years is that the millennial group in Canada is huge. And if you look at like a population pyramid in Canada, there's a huge bulge in the population pyramid. The leading edge of that is about 38 to 40 years old right now. And what those households are doing is they're moving up the population pyramid. And as you get into your 30s, you start having kids and you start looking for single detached houses. And so so the problem is that we have that demand curve for single detached housing shifting out consistently year after year. But because of policy on the supply side going back like 15 years, the supply curve for for single-attached housing is getting steeper and steeper and steeper. So this is like, this is not going to go away. This is this is something that's going to be with us probably still for another decade. Uh, uh, when, once we get through this pandemic, I think it's here to stay.
0: That's a good, good point. And then you can add to that, the fact that baby boomers are staying in their homes for even longer. And there's just not, the rush to get out of that home is, is not maybe what people thought it was going to be, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, people like their houses. I don't blame them. I like staying in my house also. Uh, My parents are still in their house and until they can't walk up and downstairs, they're still going to be there and they're in their seventies. So, uh, probably still a few years to go before they even exit theirs. And I think that's seems to be the general sentiment. Uh, and and, yeah, demographics for me, that, that part's key. Um, I mean, millennials want to have houses pretty simple as that, like anybody else. And, and, uh, a lot of focus in Canada tends to be on the supply side and what we can do on that side. But realistically, I mean, it takes time to build houses. It takes time to change that supply side of things. And so uh, calling on policymakers to build more houses. Yeah, that's, that's fine and dandy for the next five to 10 years, but that's not going to stop the train that's uh, that that's running right now. Uh, so, it, I mean, it, that's a long-term solution, not a short-term one. Uh, and that that's something we need to, to, I guess, think about, but it's the short-term stuff right now that really matters. So if the government does nothing, what, what's the risk here? Uh, I mean, there there's, I've seen some hyperbole in the media, uh, in in a recently, (laughs) recently, uh, global global mail article printed with, with our names on it. Uh, not our hyperbole, luckily, but, uh, what, I mean, what's the worst case scenario here if things just keep running, the government does nothing.
2: Um, well, I I mean, it's, it it becomes a, it becomes a, uh, an asset price bubble, right. And we have to pay the consequences of that on the other side, like go back to, to the late '80s in, in Canada, where we had a pretty obvious ramp and housing bubble in in southwestern Ontario, prices took probably almost ten years to come back. So so the risk is it's probably more of like an economic one and a household one. Where if you're if you're getting pulled into the market today because you're scared of missing out, uh, and then the market cracks a little bit, um, and say we do get like a twenty percent decline or, or something like that, just just to just as an example. You could have a situation where households are, are stuck with negative equity for, for, for a number of years. And the longer this runs, the, the bigger and longer that risk becomes. So that kind of like impacts mobility and, and all that kind of stuff and, and consumer confidence and spending. Where, where I don't think that like where the hyperbole has gone a little too far and some people are saying that this is like a systemic risk to the financial system. I don't think that's the case because we've been tightening mortgage lending standards in this country for about 15 years almost now, right? So um, this isn't a case where we're probably going to see a massive increase in, 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 in delinquencies or, or a big impact filtering through the financial system like we saw in the U.S. This is more of a, an asset price bubble and the consequences that come with, with prices falling off.
0: Excellent point. Uh, the U.S. Built, built way too many houses. It was a supply issue there as much as anything else. As much as much They gave money to people who didn't, probably didn't qualify or should not have gotten the money, and they built too many houses. We're, we don't do
2: either of those you know, you're totally right. Like we walk into a bank today and if you're paying one seven on a five-year fixed, you're qualifying at 479. So it's, it's almost the opposite of the U S it's extremely conservative here. So exactly.
0: And, and home building because of regulatory reasons, home building has been too low for too long, uh, especially in the single family part. A couple more things on housing before we, we, we move on. I guess this is a pretty hard question. I'm not even sure how to answer this, but how far do you think prices are overdone at the moment? Uh, and you talk, cause there, there are fundamental factors driving this. And there's also kind of more speculative factors, I guess, how much have the speculative factors layered on in your opinion? Uh, and, and that doesn't mean prices need to fall by that amount. It just means that we could go probably go sideways for a little while, uh, more likely than not given those, those, uh, strong underlying factors, but, uh, how much is, how much of the, the, the move in prices is, is
2: too much. Uh, it gets, it's, it's, it's tricky to untangle everything, right? Like, uh um basic thing we do is like we have a a model that we kind of keep in here that looks at prices relative to uh incomes and interest rates so it takes all those fundamentals into account and it's it's been it's it has a pretty decent track record of telling us when when things are going off the rails a bit like uh 2016 for the first time it started to say well hang on prices are running a bit too hot here and then of course remember what happened then we we saw the foreign buyer tax come in and in BC and Ontario, and then the bank tightened policy, and the hottest markets like single detached in Toronto and Vancouver corrected about ten or fifteen percent, and it took four or five years to get those declines back. I would say that's where we are today. At minimum, we've probably gone past that. We've also probably seen strength that's a lot broader than we saw back then. Um, but when I run when I run that same model today, I think yeah, we we've, we've we've gone about. Ten to fifteen percent too far right now, and that is that is giving some credit to the fact that some of this is real fundamental demand that was pulled forward. So some of the relative shift in pricing that we've seen, say, out of Toronto and into the smaller markets around Southern Ontario, is going to stick with us. Some of that's permanent, um, but I'd say about ten to fifteen percent of it is 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 gone. Is reflects just just excess. And the concern is that next month it might be twenty, and then a month after that it might be twenty-five. Right. So that's that's why we've kind of been calling on on policymakers here to 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 step in. So the next
0: logical question is what should policymakers do? But you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna let my listeners uh go to our website. They can go to the BMO economics website and uh check out our, our uh our list of potential measures. Uh too too many fraught with too many landmines when we go through them. Uh because almost no matter what you choose, no matter what the government does, they're gonna they're gonna make somebody angry. Uh, and so, us voicing our preferences uh, not 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 the best idea. Uh, I'm going I'm to wrap up housing on this note. Like, it, it, from a market perspective, I think the way, a financial market perspective, I think that the, the probably the single most or largest impact of a potential, uh, I guess, measure on slowing housing down from the government, uh, likely from the government, because we're, I mean. The Bank of Canada moving on rates is is pretty much uh, zero at this point, or the likelihood is pretty much zero. Would probably come in the swap market. I mean, what we've seen for any, the number of months now is is consistent paying out of out of bank treasuries in that kind of three to five year sector, and you've seen swap spreads widen out notably uh, and and, and uh, get pretty rich here. We're at uh, really historically rich levels. Uh, for looking back quite quite some ways. And so uh, if there is some kind of measure coming up in the, in the budget, which is out on April, the federal budget, which is out on April 19th, I think that's where probably the market opportunity is. And there, there's a chance the, the measures could come sooner than that. I mean, uh, the volume on this topic is only rising by the day. I can tell you that Rob and I, after we put this article out, uh, multiple radio interviews, multiple Uh, media, news outlets coming to to discuss things. Uh, Rob had a good interview on BNN uh, that was like 10, 12 minutes long, which is exceptionally long for that station. Uh, And and, I mean, there's just huge interest at this point. So uh, as the volume grows and we'll get the uh, March numbers in the coming days, the first few days of April, if those are insanely strong again, that the volume is only going to go up another notch. Uh, And so it's going to be tough for the government to, uh, to resist doing something at this point. The calls, it's a question of what they do. I guess more than anything else, and, and, and uh, how impactful uh, whatever they choose to do uh, ends up being. Uh, let's change gears a bit here. So, the, Rob's uh, main specialty beyond housing is, uh, is the provinces. Uh, and, and, and we've had a few provincial budgets uh, over the past couple of weeks. And, and 2020 was, was, I mean, particularly challenging for all levels of government, no, no doubt there. Uh, but uh, despite the rise in borrowing generally, provincial finance has actually made it through the year in, in pretty decent shape. Uh, if, if you look at kind of the, the, the depth of the downturn, uh, the federal government really shouldered uh, the bulk of the pandemic spending burden. And they, they really still are uh, at this point with, uh, with with spending still going. Uh, we've seen Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, Nova Scotia budgets so far. Uh, why don't we start with Ontario? They're the biggest. Uh, did, did anything stand out there? Uh, as, I mean, or was it just kind of status quo and uh, steady as she goes for now as we slowly make our way back to normal?
2: uh so ontario i would say there there wasn't much in there to be honest and and that's not a criticism i mean it's it's a very uncertain spot right now so they really kind of just held the line and said we're going to spend more in in 2021 2022 to you know to support the economy and the healthcare system through covid but beyond that there wasn't much from a policy perspective i think the biggest thing is so two things they the, the the deficit this year is is still it's still very wide, considering um, that we're coming out of the pandemic in, in, in theory. So, like three point seven percent of GDP on the deficit versus four and a half last year. It's not it's not a huge improvement, um, and they didn't put any kind of timeline to balance the budget on the books. And they actually, still two or three years out, still had deficits that were that were around two or three percent of GDP. So, not a lot of, of improvement there going forward. I think the takeaway here, though, is that they're setting the bar as as, as low as they possibly can. And that we are going to see as this fiscal year unfolds, we're going to see these numbers come in quite a bit better than they have on paper right now. So I think last year, I mean, last year, deficit was 38 and a half billion. That's, that's going to be the low. This year at 33 is, is, again, setting the bar low. And just as an example, like on their uh, on their growth forecast, I think, I mean, they're very well below consensus and very well below we are right now. And I I think they're actually like two percentage points below where we are on a real GDP call for twenty twenty one. And I mean we just we just saw the uh, another monthly come in way stronger than expected. And, and I mean you you know as well as anybody we're probably pushing the Canadian growth forecast up, not down. So so the takeaway here is that they've they've set they've set a very conservative bar. And I think you know, some of the numbers that, that came out of that budget might have might have had a few heads kind of shaking. I, I think those numbers will pretty easily be beaten.
0: Yeah, the, the growth forecasts are, are definitely uh, – I mean, we've been on the more optimistic side of things. And we're not at the top of the pack anymore, which is a little disappointing to me. But um, a- after after the January GDP number, uh, again, beating above the flash. I mean, most of the country was in lockdown in January and the economy still grew 0.7%, which is uh, pretty pretty strong, to say the least. Uh, and then February looks like it's going to be solid. Their flash estimate was plus was plus 0. 0.5. And uh, there's no reason for March to be any worse. If anything, things were more open in March. So uh, another another solid month there. And even if we see another lockdown, which is looking increasingly probable in uh, in, in April at some point, even if it lasts a month or two, I mean, uh, January suggests that the economy cope or, or is able to cope pretty well uh, at this point. We've kind of figured out how to – uh, Live to some extent, as soul crushing as it is for some of us, uh, through through this these lockdowns for extended periods of time, uh, and the economy's done okay. And so, like, it looks as though uh, growth forecasts are going to be. I mean, whatever was put in the books a month or two ago, which is when these budgets were put together, are going to be super conservative. Uh, so there, there's huge upside there. So I'm I'm pretty hopeful that I mean, even our current forecast is maybe on the conservative side. There's probably maybe not conservative, but there's probably upside. I think the risk is probably a little more. A little more skewed to the upside, but that's been my uh, bias for, for for a long time, and uh, we'll see how that plays out over the next couple of months or so. I'm guessing all the other provinces are, are similarly positioned. They've they've put created this low bar where they can uh, easily surpass it and look good whenever their elections
2: uh, end up coming. It seems that way. Quebec was was similarly conservative. Um, their deficit numbers look better though, but they I mean they came into this in in a stronger position anyway. So they're gonna they're gonna see. At this point, uh, quicker fiscal consolidation, and on the policy front, it was it was pretty similar with um, with Quebec in that they've they've released some more funding for pandemic related uh, spending, but not much else beyond that. Alberta is the other one; like uh, obviously, they have the the energy sector to deal with as well in that province. In addition to COVID, and they on their oil price forecast, they came in pretty conservative too. So, um, I mean, we've seen. WTI trading around sixty dollars over the course of the last month, and I believe their budget penciled in about forty-six, yeah, forty-six dollars for for WTI. And I mean, just just the rule of thumb is all else equal. That's the, they're already about five billion dollars ahead for the fiscal year. These prices stick, so that's that's a pretty common theme. Bars being set pretty low for this budget
0: season. Upside galore. Then, so I guess from from an issuance perspective, which is uh, what the investor community tends to focus on uh, what kind of improvement are we looking for relative to last year. And I guess uh, if you look at what they're telling us versus maybe what's more realistic or, or maybe in line with BMO's forecast, if I put it that way, uh, if, if assuming we're right on our better growth outlook. How does the issuance forecast change relative to last year and maybe look at it also relative to 2019?
2: So 2020, we obviously saw a huge increase in issuance, right? So I think we're we were tracking about 165 billion at last check. This year, I would say so for 2021, 22 um, I would say we probably come down from from 165 to I would say 145 to 150 is is what we're looking at right now on, on total provincial issuance 145 150 billion dollars, um, and that and part of the downside reflects. Yeah, deficits have come down a little bit. Some of the provinces have, have pre-borrowed too. So so Ontario and Quebec were pre-borrowing right at right, you know, through the first three months of this year to get ahead of fiscal twenty one. It turned out to be a pretty good call because we saw we saw longer term interest rates back up as well. So 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 there's that aspect. And I think even then like 145, 150 billion is probably the high bar and if you want to you know, make an estimate based on how much room there is for improvement given our economic forecast and, and stuff like that. And, and the fact that I think these initial budget numbers are very conservative, I mean, maybe you take like another $10 billion off of that or so. So maybe you look something more like around 140 billion or a little bit below by the time we're, we're all done with this. All right. So that, I mean, I say that's good news
0: for, uh, for spreads and, and uh, provincial bond owners uh, generally it's, it's, I mean, it is probably going to be a tough uh, environment for duration generally, given that, I mean, if we're right on this, on the growth forecast and, and uh, it's looking more and more like Canada actually uh, is as, as bleak as the next month or two looks uh, we're, we're going to have 44 million doses of vaccine by, by the end of June. So that should be one at least for every adult 16 or 18 and over in the whole country. So that, I mean, that, that, we should be well on our way to being through this hopefully uh by by early in the summertime uh and that that points to a really strong rebound in growth which means our, which go what goes with it is, is higher rates generally as well so uh duration might come under renewed pressure uh, as we see the full reopenings and uh assuming i'm my my optimistic view is right here so better credit definitely helps uh on that front offset a little bit of the backup in, in rates uh and then, i mean just i think from from for those who live in Ontario and, and, and other Canadians, other provinces, uh, good, to, good to hear that at least the uh, provincial budgets are, are headed in the right direction, at least. And uh, the big numbers that we've seen are, are definitely on the conservative side. All right. I guess that wraps things up for this week. Uh, Rob, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming out. We'll see what the uh, or if the federal government does anything on housing in the coming weeks. And uh, I guess target date is that uh, April 19th budget. Uh, but again, we could see something before that. And uh, thanks thanks for coming on. All right, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell, or to buy, or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified